Well, I have just had the most incredible chat with Dr. Ken Berry, the author of Lies My Doctor Told Me. We discussed amazing things like low fat equals low mood. Did you know that carrots do not contain vitamin A? And what are the correlations between statins and dementia? So keep listening and hear about these fantastic facts and more. Hi, I'm Davinia Taylor and welcome to Hack Your Health, a podcast which can support a fast track to feeling your best, boosting your mood and uplifting your general outlook on life. My biohacking journey began over eight years ago, which led me to having a ridiculously inquiring mind, always asking questions and searching for the answers. For example, why do I sometimes lose focus and what makes me sign up to a marathon at 45? Or one of my first ever questions, what the hell makes me so allergic to alcohol that I can't ever drink again and how do I manage that? After all, what is addiction and how can it be tamed? Over the years, I've done tons of research and become my own N of one experiment, trying and testing some of the most out there and fringe hypotheses to find out what actually works for me. Me being an average middle-aged British woman with the usual ups and downs of 21st century living. And now I want to share with you what I've learned. I'll be joined by some of the best visionaries in the health and biohacking space, asking them to put forward their arguments and suggestions that could support your health and well-being. As with everything, there is never a one-size-fits-all approach, so I ask you, take these conversations as food for thought. The advice you hear should never be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. But whatever you do, stay inquisitive. And as always, I love your feedback and your experience about what we talk about. Now let's go and hack your health. Our guest today has been a family medicine doctor for over 20 years. And in his own words, I used to be fat, miserable, and an ignorant doctor until I slowly discovered the power of removing slow poisons of the standard diet and replacing them with the nourishment of a proper human diet. His YouTube channel is packed with so many insightful videos, and he is the author of the incredible book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, which dispels the myths and misinformation that have been perpetuated by the medical and food industries for decades. Welcome, Dr. Ken Berry. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Okay, so in your own words, not me, you said you were fat, miserable, and an ignorant doctor. Can you please just expand on that? Yeah, so I'm six foot three inches tall, and I, at my heaviest, I weighed 297 pounds, which qualified me as morbidly obese. And we've since changed the terminology here, it would now be classified as severe obesity. And uh, I was pre diabetic, I had severe reflux, heartburn. I had dandruff. I had toenail fungus. It was a it was a mess, Davinia. It was not pleasant. I was uh, chronically irritable and irritated. Had chronic inflammation, and so because of that, I'm I'm a family physician. I see patients every day. It's very incongruous of me to try to go into a patient's exam room and say, "Hey, you need to lose a little weight," and you know, because I was fat, so that. They didn't ring true to my ears. And so I had to figure out how to fix me. And so the first thing I did was adopted the American Diabetes Association recommended diet because I was pre-diabetic. That, that sounds like a good plan, right? I ate lots of whole grain bread and I drank lots of fruit smoothies. 
and I started jogging. And after three months of that, my hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month average of what your blood sugar runs, actually went up, and I had gained a few more pounds. And it was that 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 was my epiphany that maybe I don't know a damn thing about human nutrition, and maybe the American Diabetes Association doesn't know either. And so I started really reading outside the box, looking at lots of different uh, nutrition research, and what I've kind of stumbled upon with lots of other people, it's not just me, is what I now call a proper human diet. And I, I, I've been following that way of eating now for seven or eight years, in which time my hemoglobin A1C is uh, normal. My prediabetes is completely gone and I've maintained a healthy weight since then. And that's, that's not in the face of calorie restriction or portion control or pushing away before I'm finished, that's eating as much food as I want each and every day. And so for the average person, if you say, hey, you can reverse obesity and reverse type 2 diabetes and reverse fatty liver and lower your blood pressure and also eat as much food as you would like, eat until you're comfortably stuffed. I think that's a compelling, tempting thing for the average person is like, wait, I don't have to starve myself. Hmm, I'm interested. Tell me more. Okay, so we get advised in the UK, as you guys in the USA, of how to eat. And there are so many papers that are preached by professors, eminent professors, that we trust. And our doctors tell us the same thing. Lots of whole grains, fruit, vegetables. How did you come to decide that what they're saying isn't quite what it seems, particularly with the papers, because everyone always says it's evidence-backed. Can you explain how we, the general public, can sort of like dispel these lies? Yeah, I, I can. And I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible because it gets very complicated and very convoluted, but there's no point going into that, that complexity. So all of any time your doctor, your dietitian, your nutritionist, or your next door neighbor tells you that it's been proven that eating lots of fruits and veg, you ever notice they never say eat lots of veg and fruits. It's always fruits and veg, right? Uh, that, that that's been proven to either prevent cancer or help diabetes or help you live longer. They're incorrect without exception because all of these research studies that, that these experts out there are talking about are observational data, observational research. And just to keep it simple, what that means is, is that this kind of research can only show a possible association. It can never prove anything. It can never show causation. And so there are different strengths of research studies, right? And so a randomized controlled trial in human beings that's double-blinded, that's the ultimate research that you can actually use to prove things. In the United States, before we let a pharmaceutical house uh, get FDA approval, they have to present the FDA with randomized controlled research. Now, there's problems with that with the big pharma companies because typically the researchers are also their employees. So that's a problem. But if they presented an observational study to try to get an FDA approval for a drug, the FDA would laugh them out of the they would be like, dude, this is this doesn't show anything. You can't use that kind of research to show causation. And so the next time in the, the Daily Mail or whatever paper you read, there's like new study proves that eating lots of fruit will make you immortal. 
you can rest assured that that study was observational in nature. It does not prove or show causation of anything. It can only show a possible association. And that's very important to understand. Uh, if there were randomized control trials in humans proving that lots of fruit and veg were absolutely healthier, they would be touting that from the rooftops each and every day. There is no such research. So just briefly, I'm um, interested in the gut microbiome. And we have a professor over here in the UK, and he champions eating 30 different types of fruit, veg, seed, nuts every week to populate the gut microbiome. What can I say to him about that? <laughs> well, you can say this to him. And also all your viewers, the next time they see their healthcare provider, they can say the following thing. When they are recommended that sort of foolish diet, they can say, that's intriguing. I'd love to see the research that proves that. Could you print me out a copy of that research? I know you're busy, doctor. I know, but you can email it to me later. Just whenever you have a moment, print me out the research that proves that and email it to me. I'd love to read it. And what will happen is, is that there'll be a very addled look on your doctor's face because they've never considered that maybe they shouldn't say shit that hasn't been proven. <laughs> But they do it all the time. And so when you ask that question like that, your doctor's going to be like, well, I mean, it's common knowledge. And you're like, yeah, I understand. There's lots of things that are common knowledge that actually turn out to be false. So could you send me the study that proves that? I would love to read it. And at that point, your doctor will either kick you out of the office or they'll shut up saying things that they can't prove. Okay, so speaking of doctor's advice and something that I'm definitely against is the calorie counting that is everywhere. I think it's just become law in the UK that on menus we have to have calories per meal or per dish. So can you explain the calories in, calories out equation and how it is so wrong and actually detrimental for our thinking? So here's the problem with the calorie thing. When you go to a restaurant, and you're going to order French toast with maple syrup, and it says, oh, this has 642 calories. The average person sitting in the average restaurant believes that that's an, an accurate number, that that's an exact number, that somehow the restaurant or the National Health Service or somebody did the research, and they know for a fact how many calories are in that. So here's the first thing everybody needs to understand with regards to calories in is there's a plus or minus 20% error rate, okay? So if it says 640 calories, it might have 20% more or 20% less. And if you're trying to aim for 1,500 calories a day, that matters. That matters a lot. And so essentially, the only way you could ever know what the French toast and maple syrup that you're about to stuff in your face hole actually contains calorie-wise would be to send it off to a lab and have it analyzed. And then they could give you an exact number, but here's the problem. Then you couldn't eat it because it's been burned up in the bomb calorimeter in the lab. So now you have to order another French toast and maple syrup. But again, there's the 20% variability. It might, it's different. It's not the same exact French toast and maple syrup. So that's problem number one is you can never accurately calculate the amount of calories you're taking into your body. If you're going to eat an apple that's got 79 calories, well, does it? Or is that the average plus or minus 
Exactly. So number one, you can never know how many calories you're truly eating. If you're trying to eat 1500 a day, which is too low, by the way, uh, you, you might be eating 1300 or 1700. You have no way of ever, ever knowing the truth. Now, the second part of this equation is how many calories do you need a day to maintain your body weight, maintain your health, maintain your energy level? And so there are lots of calculators online where you can put in your height, your weight, your gender, your relative activity level, and that will give you a number. Oh, you need, Davinia, you need 1,497 calories a day to maintain. Where did that number come from? What's the margin of error for that number? So the margin of error for that number is literally at no, no less than 30% on either side, okay? Because if you have a slight fever, the amount of calories you're burning goes up. You didn't account for that in the calculation. If you're standing rather than sitting, if you slept well last night versus you didn't sleep well, if you're pissed off versus very happy today, if you're under a ton of stress at work versus everything's going great, literally every single one of those counts towards how many calories it takes to maintain. And so it becomes a quickly a calculus problem. Also, You'll hear people talk about the laws of thermodynamics when it comes to human nutrition and and calories in, calories out. So the first thing you need to know that completely shoots that in the head is the laws of thermodynamics only apply to closed systems. It has to be insulated, double, triple, quadruple insulated for the laws of thermodynamics to apply. The calorie that we talk about, really a kilocalorie, is a measure of heat. It's not a measure of nutrition. It's not a measure of energy, mental or physical. It's a measure of heat. And so in order to ever do any calculations based on the laws of thermodynamics, you have to do that in a closed system. Guess what? Human beings, the human body, is about as open a system as there can be. My butt sitting on the the chair right now, that's changing my intake and outtake of, of, of heat energy, right? What do I have my thermostat set on? 69, 70, 71, 72, that matters. What if I've got a slight fever or what if I, I'm low on iodine so my body temperature is a little lower? All that stuff matters. And so this quickly becomes just an incomprehensible calculus problem that no human on the planet can calculate especially that guru who's telling you to move more and eat less. you got to mind your calories. This guy's a moron. If he thinks <laughs> that in the universe, you can calculate the knowable amount of calories that you're taking in and the knowable amount of calories that you're burning each day. Those are unknowable numbers. And that's why for the average person who's just trying to lose some weight and get healthier, Trying to count calories in, calories out is, is just, it's, it's an exercise in futility that's going to result in you failing. And I guess, I guess you can burn, well, but sorry, I don't I need a better word, but you metabolize different calories from different food sources in different ways. And some calories, I guess, or some amounts of food are useful and some are actually very unuseful and extremely unhelpful to the body. So I just wanted to move on because of the calories that are generally considered extremely high in, say, a ketogenic diet. Can you, for the audience who don't understand a ketogenic diet, which is pretty famous now, can you explain how you happened upon it and how you've adapted it and how it really works for you and in what way? Yeah, so back when I was a, a severely obese 
pre-diabetic, miserable doctor. I started reading, and the first three books I happened to read were Mark Sisson's Primal Blueprint, Lauren Cordain's Paleo Diet, and then I bought a tattered copy of uh, Robert Atkins' Diet Revolution. I bought it for 50 cents at a rummage sale. Those are the three first books. And now, as you can see behind me, hundreds and hundreds of books, thousands of research articles since then to kind of hone down or rediscover what a proper human diet is. And so in, I started Primal, Paleo, and that didn't really do much for me because I was still eating lots of quinoa. So, so what does the Paleo diet do? How does it differ from the standard American diet? Yeah, so Paleo says don't eat anything processed. Don't eat dairy. Don't eat uh, just junk food, basically, which is great advice for some people. And some people will notice some improvement in their overall health with that. But I was still eating way too many carbohydrates for me. I was wearing out the Ezekiel bread, which is a sprouted grain. Yes, I know that. You see that in Whole Foods and really snazzy health shops. It's really expensive, actually. Yeah, I was drinking the fruit juice smoothies. I was making these huge vegetable conglomerations of all kinds of different beans and peas and legumes and corn and eating that with non-GMO uh, stone ground tortilla chips, right? That sounds expensive. Uh, sure. I mean, it's going to cost more and it's going to, you know, but it, it gives you that simulacra of, of better health. Oh, this is a better choice, which I call a false choice because it didn't help me any, Davinia. And so after a while, I thought, well, maybe I'm just eating too many carbohydrates for me personally. And so I really cut the carbohydrates drastically. And immediately I started to lose weight. Immediately my A1C started to improve. Immediately, even my reflux heartburn started to get better. And just aches and pains that I had in my early 40s just started to go away. And that's when I thought, well, maybe I'm onto something here. Let me keep digging into the research, and and back to the the, the three macros that. And let's let's talk about that with keto for because I think it's very important. So carbohydrates, your body doesn't build anything with them. They are just a fuel source. Yeah, I guess nothing's made from carbs, is it? No organs, your brain. That's right. And so carbohydrates, all the calories count in a carbohydrate. Now, when it comes to protein, most people know that our body uses proteins and amino acids to build muscle and bone and other tissues. We get that. But what many, many people don't know is they think that fat, the third macronutrient, is also just energy. You burn that or you store it. There's no other option. What people need to understand, and it's very important, is that the human body uses the fat in your diet to build Thousands of different things. Every cell membrane of every single cell in your body is made from lipids. All your hormones, sex hormones, very important, but all your other hormones as well, are made from fat and cholesterol. The myelin sheath around each of your axons of each of your nerve cells is made of fat. And so you do need to count all the calories and carbs for sure. But anybody with any degree of nutrition knowledge knows you can't count the calories from protein because we build stuff with that. But the same principle applies with fat as well. We build lots of things out of fat. And so you can't count the nine calories that supposedly come from each gram of fat in your diet. And so back again, the calorie count is unknowable. But secondly, what seems to work for everyone who's overweight, pre-diabetic, has fatty liver, has high blood pressure, has PCOS, has any of these other chronic medical conditions is when you think of your carbohydrate intake 
And don't count net carbs, count total carbs. When you think of it as a knob on your stereo and you turn down your carbohydrate intake, immediately your body starts to heal. You start to lose the unwanted stored fat. Your blood sugar starts to return to normal. Perhaps even more importantly, your insulin level starts to return to normal because you can't burn fat. You can't metabolize fat if your insulin level is too high. It's impossible. And so when you get that insulin level back down to normal, it's easier for you to metabolize the stored fat that you'd like to burn. Okay. Is there any type of fat okay? I mean, do we need to be careful about the sources of fat? I mean, some fats are inflammatory, I guess. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So the fats that everyone needs to avoid are the fats that are recommended the most often by the NHS and all the other dietitians and gurus out there. Any vegetable seed oil is highly processed and very high in omega-6 fatty acids, and it's going to cause some degree of inflammation in your body. So human beings are homo sapiens sapiens. That's our species, right? And we have been on this planet for a long damn time, 300,000 years, just as homo sapiens, but millions of years as hominids who ate mostly meat. And this is not arguable in the anthropological literature and the paleoanthropological literature. We have been meat eaters for about three or three and a half million years. And so when I eliminated all the vegetable oils and I started cooking in animal fat, butter, lard, beef tallow, duck fat, goose fat, lamb fat, when I started using those as my primary fats and I actually went out of my way to avoid vegetable oils, chronic inappropriate inflammation in my body started to get better and go away. And so as I converted from just standard crap to low carb to keto, one big marker for me was the severe heartburn. So bad, I used to take two Nexium every day. It got 80% better. And so I, I would have to take an occasional Rolaids or Tums once or twice a week. That was huge for me because I had bad heartburn. But when I when I stopped all the vegetable oils, all the vegetable fats completely and just use animal fats, my heartburn went completely away. And it's been almost four years now. I haven't had heartburn a single day using only animal fats in my diet. And so that is, that's anecdotal. That's just one guy. But when you look at the comments on my YouTube videos, and some of them have tens of thousands of comments, you see over and over and over, this happened to me too. This worked for me too. I thought you were full of shit until I tried it. And now it's better. And so I love those comments because that's that's just real people who've got a, a job and a spouse and a dog trying to live their life. And so when somebody like that, you know, and that's common sense people, that's salt of the earth people. When they tell you, hey, I thought you were full of shit, but now I'm back a year later to tell you you're right. To me, that means a lot. Okay, so we've been told that saturated fat leads to obesity, cholesterol, heart disease. Can you just explain what cholesterol is? I mean, actually, the reason why I started following you was because I went paleo keto and I have tons of like fats. And my doctor said my cholesterol's high, but I've got a really good weight. I mean, I run marathons, I'm 45 and I've never felt better, but they really wanted me to lower my cholesterol. So I searched on the internet, found you, and you literally said what the American Heart Association had written. Cholesterol is no longer a molecule of concern for overconsumption. And I was like, what the hell? 
Well, actually, I didn't say that. I said the F word. But nobody believes me when I say this. Can you please explain it? Yeah. So it's been several years now that the American Heart Association came out and said dietary cholesterol, because they used to say limit that to 300 milligrams a day, max. And they literally came out and said in their new guidelines several years ago, Davinia, that dietary cholesterol is not a molecule of concern. It doesn't matter how much you eat. It's not going to increase your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. But the problem is, is they didn't hold a press conference to say that. They just put it on page 142 in their new guidelines, which no human reads and mostly no doctors read it either. Right. They just look at the takeaway points and then that's how they practice medicine. That's literally how it's done. And so only because I'm digging into all this did I find that quote and said, oh, my God, they just said literally you can eat as many egg yolks a day as you want. It is not any concern how much cholesterol is in your diet. But the average doctor in the United States and I suspect the average doctor in the UK still has no damn idea that the American Heart Association said that. I find it very disingenuous on the part of the AHA after promoting a low cholesterol, low saturated fat for decades, vehemently, right? Very, very boisterously they promoted this. And then all of a sudden they're going to make a literal 180 degree turn. But they didn't, they're not being very boisterous about that. They just buried it in the guidelines and they didn't hold a press conference. They could print out a one page handout and send to every doctor in the United States and the UK and say, hey, cholesterol, is no, don't stop worrying about cholesterol in your patient's diet. It's meaningless. That would immediately change how medicine is practiced in the US and the UK, wouldn't it? But they didn't do that. And, and, and so there's all these conspiracy theories as to why they would not be as vocal about that as they were about, oh my God, don't eat cholesterol or you'll die. Then all of a sudden they just stopped talking about it and, and backed quietly away. It's really odd, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, of course you've got the conspiracy theories. I mean, I've just looked it up and statins are still the number one selling drug on the planet. Yeah. And the American Heart Association gets millions of dollars in donations from the big statin companies each and every year. And that's part of one of the conspiracy theories is why would you, why would you tell people it's fine to eat cholesterol if you're getting millions of dollars from cholesterol lowering drug companies, right? And I don't know if that conspiracy is true or not. I think time will tell. Maybe we'll have a, a Twitter thread that's dropped by somebody that, that reveals the background emails and stuff about that as well. I don't know. But all I know is, is that the, even the American Heart Association says, don't worry about how much cholesterol you eat. It's meaningless for your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. So just going back to statins, what are the risks with statins? I mean, there's some out there doctors who will take the risk and actually say it could be triggering the epidemic of dementia that we've got. And is that to do with having not enough fat in our brain? Sure. So the human brain, if you if you freeze dried it and then weight it, 60 or 70 percent of the weight of the human brain, guess what it is? Fat. Our brains are basically just fat and water. That's what your brain is. And so it would stand to reason that since I said earlier, our body actually builds things out of fat. If you're going to replace some neurons, brain cells, or you're going to wrap some more myelin around an axon so it fires better, 
I'll bet you your body gets that from the fat in your diet, from the cholesterol in your diet, right? And so it beggars belief how the American Heart Association is, is not stepping up and saying, hey, we made a huge mistake. I've had conversations with several other influencers in, the, in my sphere of influence who have said, man, all it's going to take is for one young and hungry assistant district attorney to file a lawsuit and say, hey, I want discovery. I want all your emails, Pfizer, Merck. I, I want uh, Eli Lilly. I want all your internal documents. I want all your emails. I want all the raw data from your studies. Because I would, I'll bet you that there would be a huge check written by the big pharma manufacturers because they know without a doubt that taking a statin or even worse, the PCSK9 inhibitors like Repatha and Praluent that precipitously lower your LDL cholesterol, they know without a doubt that that lowers testosterone in men, that it raises blood sugar in everybody, that there's a very strong association between taking a statin, lowering your cholesterol, and developing dementia later in life. And everyone needs to know this. This is very important. When Pfizer or Merck does a study for one of their cholesterol-lowering medications, right, they design the study themselves. All the researchers that work on the study are either employed by them or independent contractors for them or own stock in the company. So now we've got to deal with human nature, right? And because, you know, there's a, a classic saying that it's very hard to get a man to understand something that his paycheck depends on him not understanding, right? I think Upton Sinclair maybe said something like that. And I think it was exactly right. And so now here's the next thing people need to know. So let's say that Pfizer, they've got a new cholesterol lowering medication and they do this big study and the study turns out to show that it has no effect or that it has negative effects. Do they have any duty to the public or to medicine to publish that study or can they hide that study and claim proprietary data, trademark, and, and that data never be given to your doctor? And there have been multiple studies done with statins and with the other, the PCSK9 inhibitors that were never published and nobody has access to that data to why they chose not to, to publish that paper. And so there's a long list of things that a statin or a cholesterol-lowering medicine can do to humans that's bad. And I talk about that in multiple YouTube videos. But the companies don't have to give us that data. They can keep that behind closed doors until that young, hungry district attorney files that lawsuit. And then we'll finally all get access to all that data that should have been public knowledge to begin with because very often these companies do their studies based in part on funds, money, that they've gotten from the federal government, yet they have no duty to release that data as being part of the public domain. When it's actually the public, it is the public's property, really. And it gives us an opportunity to make an informed choice of what we like and what we don't like. Interesting. Also, just quickly, because we were talking about dementia in the brain, low fat and depression or mental health issues What's your thinking on that? Oh, they're, they're intimately related and connected. So there's two things. So if the average person is eating a plant-based diet, very low in fat, very high in carbohydrates, first of all, 
their blood sugar is going to spike multiple times a day, which is very closely associated with mental health and mental illness, right? Number two, their insulin level is going to spike multiple times a day. Every time they have a high-carb meal or a high-carb snack, also intimately related with dementia, with depression, with multiple other mental health problems. Thirdly, they're probably going to be using vegetable seed oils, which cause chronic inappropriate inflammation in the human body. Again, chronic inflammation intimately linked with mental health and mental disease, mental health issues. And then finally, they're going to be eating a low a diet low in cholesterol and low in saturated fat. And we've already talked about how that's got to be good for your brain. And the, here's the dastardly thing about this. These people are eating this diet, which they don't really love, which makes them hangry every two hours, which makes them have to constantly be reaching for snacks, which ultimately makes them be, they're spending more money on food, and they're constantly having to think about where's my next fruit smoothie going to come from? Where's my next snack going to come from? And it's harming their mental health. And the reason that they're following this damn diet is because their beloved, trusted healthcare provider, their doctor, their dietitian, their nutritionist, recommended this diet to them. Your mama told you to eat this diet. Just, it's almost it, mind blowing boggling to the mind that that people are damaging their own health because they're following advice from people they trust, all the advice based on observational research, which doesn't prove anything, or based on the recommendation of the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association, both of whom get millions of dollars each and every year from big food manufacturers and from big pharma manufacturers. So can you really trust their advice? And so if you don't trust some of the advice you were given in the last couple of years, and we won't mention any trigger words, then what else maybe should you re-examine? What else have you been lied to about? If you feel like you've been lied to the last two or three years, maybe you've been lied to about other things as well. And I think it's time for everyone to start to question every piece of advice that they've been given by doctors and dietitians who are basically have been trained by big pharma and big food you should maybe start to question other advice that they've given you as well. Just a thought. For example, salt. Limit your salt. I love salt. It's so tasty. And I can't, I don't feel like I'm addicted to it, but it just enhances my meal. So everything says low fat, low salt. Can you please explain, can I or can I not add salt to my steak? Yeah, so... Every mammal on the planet of every species eats as much salt as they want every day. Some animals will walk for miles to find an outcropping of rock or mud that's very high in salt, and they will lick that. Hunters here in the United States use that to their advantage. They'll go and set up their, their hunting outpost near a salt lick because they know the animals are going to come and, and lick that. Now, the animals are not eating that salt because they're gluttons or because they're stupid, or because they've been tricked. They're eating that because they need it. They need a supply of salt in their diet every day. Now, carnivores get plenty of salt because they eat the blood of their prey. And so they don't have to go and lick these salt licks, but every herbivore knows of a salt lick that they have to go lick. Now, human beings, Homo sapiens sapiens, we're no different. We're a mammal. We have to have a supply of salt every day, and that can come from your diet. 
that of food that you eat, or that can come from adding salt. And, and there's an American brand that I use all the time because it comes from deep underground. Salt is good for all mammals. All mammals need a daily supply of salt. I've got several YouTube videos explaining this. And in the show notes of those videos, one of the reasons I keep bringing up my YouTube channel is, is if people are like, who's this redneck from the U.S.? <laughs> he don't know. About. I've got the research in the show notes. You can click on the link and you can print it out and read it for yourself or take it to your doctor when they say you need to cut your salt. You can say, well, actually, this, these studies that I printed out say that that cutting your salt too much is actually dangerous and increases your risk of heart failure. Is that true, doctor? I love it when patients ask their doctor questions like that. Oh, I can see you're so controversial. You love a bit of a fight, don't you? <laughs> sure. Well, you know what? If all this had been done over the last few decades, just randomly, or if it had been done completely accidentally, I would not have this fight. I would not have this chip on my shoulder, but this has been done based on millions of dollars of advertising and millions of dollars of donations to medical schools, to, to dietitian schools, to, to AHA, to ADA. And then the, the news, okay, let's take the Daily Mail. How many advertisements do they have for drugs every day on their website and in their, in their newspaper, right? How many ads for big food do they have on their website and in the newspaper? constant. So do you not think they know if they came out and said, hey, you guys should all eat keto, all this bullshit about about low fat, low cholesterol and, and cut your salt. It's all bullshit. How many millions of dollars would they lose a year in ad revenue? Yeah, fortune. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is a business model. Let's face it. We are consumers. And I do like consuming this information because when you explain it, it makes common sense. And it's like, of course, what do you mean we're going against three million years of evolution? <laughs> Just designing our own rhetoric. Okay, so I wanted to speak to you about this whole grain rhetoric that we've all had forced fed on us. And every single time I look at the food pyramid in the UK, it's something like eight portions a day of whole grain, be it pasta or whole grain bread. Why is it that that's pushed on us? But also, why is it so bloody addictive? So all grains, including wheat, contain endomorphins, which are, and also uh, milk contains this as well, which are basically molecules that act on your opiate receptors. And so they, it's, this is known in the research that they give you a little bit of a high. They calm down anxiety. They make you hurt a little less. They make you feel a little better. And it's not like smoking crack in the back alley. It's more subtle than that. But they absolutely contain endomorphins and endorphins that make you feel better when you eat them. So what about the whole whole grain thing? Okay, let's talk about that. First of all, let me say for the record that I do think that that whole grain bread, if it's truly whole grain and doesn't just have some brown food coloring put in it, if it's truly whole grain, I think that's slightly less bad for you. I like how you say less bad rather than good for you. Absolutely, because they're not the same thing, are they? Now, I think the average doctor and dietitian mean very well when they tell you you should only eat whole grains. Don't eat that cheap bread. I think that they mean well, and I think they truly in their heart of hearts, they believe that that's good advice. But what I would tell every person listening to this is if you have a glucometer, or a, a continuous glucose monitor. I want you to eat a piece of the of the cheapest white bread that you can eat. Check your blood sugar before that, 30 minutes after and one hour after. 
and then repeat that same experiment the next day with a slice of expensive whole wheat bread that even has little seeds sprinkled on the top. Very artisanal, right? I want, and then repeat that same experiment. And what you'll find is that your blood sugar goes up just as much as if you ate the cheap white bread. Another good thing you can do if you have a glucometer is put in one of the strips and touch that to your tongue and look at the reading. It'll show up nothing, zero, because you don't have sugar in your mouth after you've rinsed your mouth and waited an hour after you eat. Now, I want you to take a piece of artisanal, non-GMO, whole grain bread with little seeds on the top, and I want you to chew that in your mouth for 60 solid seconds. Chew it until it's just liquid mush, and then take the glucometer, put a fresh strip in, and touch that to your tongue, and watch it read 400, 500, 600, because the starch in whole grain, non-GMO, artisanal, handcrafted bread. That's five ninety-nine a slice. Is the same damn starch in the cheap bread, and it breaks down into sugar. Starch is just long chains of sugar. We have an enzyme in our mouth called amylase, and when we're chewing that bread, it starts to break down the starch immediately into sugar, glucose. And so that's why when you touch the glucometer to your tongue after 60 seconds of chewing the bread, it's going to read 400, 500, 600 in the U.S. It'll be different, but it'll still be super high with your units in the U.K. And anybody who's under the delusion that whole grain bread is good for diabetics, that will immediately dispel that. They'll be like, this is pure sugar. Why am I eating this? Okay. So what about fiber? That is touted as a superfood. I mean, whole grains touted as a superfood, but specifically fiber. Right. So there's several ways we can look at this from a very common sense perspective. What about a baby that's exclusively breastfed for the first two years of that baby's life? Now, anybody, raise your hand if you don't think that exclusive breastfeeding is very, very healthy for that baby. We would all say, no, that's that's the perfect diet for that baby. Well, for two years, that baby got zero fiber. Zero grams of fiber. There's no fiber in breast milk. So right off the bat, you're like, huh, well, maybe we develop a need for fiber later in life. Then you look at all the people, and there's hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are just carnivores. They just eat meat and eggs. And there's zero fiber in that. And they've been doing this diet for 10 years, 15, 20 25 years. They haven't gotten colon cancer. They haven't died. They haven't had a heart attack or a stroke. They haven't had any of the terrible things that mainstream media horrifies you with. Oh, you better eat your fiber or you'll get fill in the blank. They haven't gotten any of that stuff. So now we've got two very large population of very healthy humans who don't eat any fiber whatsoever. So, and then thirdly, I would ask your doctor, what's how many grams of fiber are essential for humans? Like if you don't eat that much fiber a day, you'll literally get sick and die. There is no amount. It has never been claimed to be essential by the, the National Institute of Health here in the United States or the NHS in Britain. There is no amount. Literally, if you never ate another gram of fiber for the rest of your life, you would be fine. Now, finally, Davinia, we've got the, the huge population of people who have irritable bowel disease or who have ulcerative colitis or who have Crohn's disease, who have discovered actually the less fiber I eat or drink, the less severe my, my colon symptoms are. 
but I thought fiber was really good for your colon. Yet these people with, in some cases, debilitating, disabling bowel disease, irritable bowel, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, they have almost complete remission of their symptoms when they remove all the fiber from your diet. And so when you're faced with these three very large human populations who are having no medical problems from having a zero fiber diet or their medical problem actually gets better when they remove fiber from their diet. At that point, you're like, what's going on here? And then when you start finding out that a lot of the research that shows that fiber is just mandatory, it was sponsored by a company that makes a fiber supplement. <laughs> now you're, we're back to human nature again. What? Who do I believe? Wow, that's incredible. Just quickly, what do you eat in a day? And what does your wife eat? Just to give us a nice perspective. Or what did you eat? Yeah, so I haven't eaten today. It's uh, 3 p.m. here in my time. I haven't eaten today. I usually don't break my fast until 4, 5, 6 p.m., somewhere in there. And then I'll have one big carnivore meal. And so probably today it'll be two pounds of minced beef. And it'll probably be a can of cod liver. Not, I don't take cod liver oil. I actually eat the cod liver. It comes in a tin. It's delicious. And it's, it is a literal superfood multivitamin when you eat cod liver like that, any liver, really. Does it not have toxins in being a liver? No, I've got a video about that oh on my, my YouTube channel. Oh, You're going to love it. So the liver's not a filter. We're all told that, but that's not how the liver works. It does not filter and store toxins. That's a complete myth. Okay. And so liver is one of the healthiest foods on the planet that any mammal can eat. It's very, very nutritious. It's the most nutrient dense food on the planet. And so I might eat a second time a couple hours later, or I might just have that one meal a day. So I usually eat one meal a day or two meals a day, 99% carnivore. Sometimes I'll use some cilantro or some garlic or onion uh, as a garnish or as a, a flavoring or a seasoning, some pepper. Uh, I, I always salt my food. Absolutely. I salt my food to taste because that's what every other mammal, mammal on the planet does. They eat salt until they don't want any more. Then they stop eating it. So in humans, that means salt your food to taste. And so I might have one or two grams of carbohydrates a day in my diet from the condiments or from the, the spices, but never is the veg or the fruit, the biggest part of my plate. I just don't eat that stuff. And that's how I'm able to maintain a non-diabetic, reasonably healthy body fat, body uh, muscle percentage human body. Most people who are 54 don't look like this or feel like this or act like this. And so I think that's a big part of this. And you'll see other carnivores out there. Sean Baker, he's way older than me. I think he's 56. He's an old man. But he eats nothing, and he doesn't even eat organ meat. He just eats muscle meat. That's all he eats. He eats ribeye, basically. And he looks amazing. He's breaking world records in rowing and other sports for his age. It's ridiculous to think that you need fiber or you need fruits or you need veg. You don't need any. But what about women? Do women need something extra because of our crazy hormones? Good question. And this is where my reading in anthropology and paleoanthropology has, has been very valuable. So let's get in Dr. Berry's time machine, Davinia. Let's go back in time 100,000 years. Human DNA has not changed in that time. We are the same exact species then as we are now. 
if I let my stubble grow out and you got your hair all frazzled and we got all dirty, they would not be able to tell us from their own tribe members. What did the women in that tribe 100,000 years ago? They were carnivores, just like the men. We know this from stable isotope analysis data from paleoanthropological research and paleonutrition. We know this. This is not debatable. This is settled science. I, I, I hesitate to use that term because it's it's so charged these days, but that's just known in paleoanthropological researcher circles. So did that woman once a month, did she send her, her husband down to the the corner market to get her some crisps or to get her something. But no. demand chocolate and scream that she wants her Netflix on. No, right. No, she just ate the fatty meat and the organs just like her husband did. She had, they ate the eggs if they found them. Sure, once a year when the berries were ripe, they ate a lot of that. But those berries aren't ripe once a month. They're ripe once a year. And so for 11 months out of the year, she ate fatty meat and eggs and evidently her cycle and her thyroid, and everything else that we're told that you've got to have carbs for, somehow she was able to grow up and reproduce and then become a grandmother and help her offspring to reproduce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for the thousands of generations that bring us up to you and I. So it, it, it kind of becomes silly at that point to say, oh, women are special. They need carbs at this time of the month, or they need fruit, or they need whole grains, or they need sourdough bread at certain times of the month. No, you might crave that, but that doesn't mean you need that. And we know that very clearly from the paleoanthropological data. Okay, so you just mentioned the word craving. What do we do if we have done really well, say we've done a week of keto, and we feel good, but we got Christmas coming up and I literally pushed a mince pie away and you know, you got summer and then you got like paella and you got like warm bread. I mean, when does it stop? How do you say no? And if you do fall off the wagon, what do you do? Yeah. And so let me say for full disclosure, I love all those things that you just said. I love those things, but I know that if I eat those things regularly, it will lead to me re-becoming a pre-diabetic, gaining weight, my blood pressure going up, my dandruff coming back. I don't want any of that to happen. I want to eat a diet that keeps me feeling this good uh, for decades. And so I, I avoid that stuff. Now, funny you should mention the craving thing because I have a YouTube video about that. And so what I would do, if you're invited to a holiday celebration or a birthday party or whatever, I eat before I go. I will smash some minced beef or a ribeye or two or three, six eggs, 10 eggs, 12 eggs. I will go to that gathering stuffed because if you're fighting hunger and addiction and craving at the same time, you're going to lose that battle. But if you're not hungry and you're just left with the craving, you're, you're going to have a better chance of winning that battle. Just like if you go and you're you're frazzled and you're you're tired, you didn't sleep the night before, and you're pissed off because the Uber driver did whatever, you're much more likely because of the stress and the cortisol, you're much more likely to say, screw it, I'm gonna eat the pie or whatever. So go full, take a dish with you that is that is carnivore or keto friendly. Don't announce that it's keto, just sit it down because if it's very easy to make delicious food that's keto right? Just sit it down. And then if you have to eat, eat what you brought, right? And then the, the final thing is, this is a great hack, is to announce to the dinner party or whatever the gathering is, I just found out I'm pre-diabetic. Or I just found out I've got metabolic syndrome. I can't, I, I have to avoid carbohydrates. 
just like probably you sometimes have to announce, hey, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, I'm not doing shots tonight. <laughs> and, and this is a great example for everybody, Davinia. When you do have to say that because some dumbass has offered you a Manhattan and you're like, dude, I'm in recovery. What does everybody at the party from that moment forward, What? how do they treat you? Oh, well, do you know what I must share with you? Most people go, oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then they literally will slap the guy that's offering you the tequila sunlight. They're like, get the hell out of here, moron. She's in recovery. Don't offer her that. Well, when you announce to the party, I've got metabolic disease. I have to eat really, really low carb or I'm going to become a diabetic or I already have prediabetes. Everybody at that party now becomes an ally. And they're like, bitch, get the pie away from her. She's got metabolic disease. What's wrong with you? Does that make sense? And so then you actually recruit everyone to become your metabolic allies and to protect you from the the high carb desserts that everybody otherwise would be saying, oh, you don't love me. You don't want a piece of my cake. You can be like, I've got metabolic disease, dude. What's wrong with you? How insensitive is is it of you to offer that to me? What are you doing? I'm out of (laughs) here. What about alcohol? Do you drink alcohol? Very rarely. Now, again, for full disclosure, I love a good whiskey sour. I love a good Manhattan. I love a good uh, old fashioned. But if I drink those regularly, I'll start to develop belly fat. I'll start to get fatty liver. I'll start to get inflammation. And so everybody has to repeat after me. Everybody listening to this, repeat after me. Alcohol is poison to the human body, full stop. That glass of red wine that they said for years is good for your heart. That's what we call, it's a technical term in the South here in the U.S., we call that bullshit. (laughs) There is zero research that shows that any amount of alcohol is in any way beneficial to human beings. It's complete bollocks. That is, there's no truth to that. Any amount of alcohol has to be detoxified, not stored by your liver, but detoxified by your liver. Your liver will stop digesting your food to detoxify the alcohol. That's how important it is to get the alcohol and the the aldehydes out of your bloodstream when you drink alcohol. So with all that being said, on my birthday, I'll probably have a club soda and vodka with a twist of lime. Is that keto friendly? Just putting out there for my followers. It's less bad than than the old-fashioned or the tequila sunrise, but it's still not good, but it's less bad. So if you're going to have a mixed drink, rarely, make sure it's zero sugar, zero carb, and that's going to make it slightly less bad, but that still does not make it good. Probably for our our anniversary, I'll have a a zero-carb mixed drink, but I have one, and that's it, because Nisha and I can have lots of fun, trust me, without alcohol being involved. Oh, I bet you can. <laughs> oh, I bet you two are hilarious together. It was your wife who was pushed you into this, wasn't it? Because you had a regular practice and you just, she said, you need to go on YouTube. And you just said, no, I'm not doing that. She did. That's right. Yeah. She said, I, I came home from the clinic one day and she said, how many people have you helped today? And I said, I don't know, 30, 40, however many people I saw. And she said, that's great. I'm proud of you. But what if you could help three or 4,000 people a day. Wouldn't that be something? And she had been on me for a while to start a YouTube channel. And when she put it like that, I'm like, I did what every smart husband does. I listened to my wife and I started a YouTube channel. And now look, you got a best-selling book. (laughs) Husbands, always listen to your wife. Even when she's wrong, she's right. 
Exactly, exactly. Well, that which leads me nicely on to the next section. Give me a wow moment. Um, something that's going to blow my audience's mind. Something super that you found out on your journey over this past seven years. You've been living this way, isn't it? So, what really blew your mind? Gosh, there's been so many things. I guess the realization that for years, for decades, I was giving not only bad nutrition advice to my patients, but probably harmful nutrition advice. And that's really one of the reasons that I've dedicated the remainder of my life to informing people about a proper human diet is, is almost in a way penance for the terrible nutrition advice that I used to give people back when I used to say things like, you need to join the gym and join Weight Watchers. You need to eat, eat less and move more. You need to eat, only eat whole grain breads. You need to have fruit smoothies, only have whole wheat uh, pastries. I harmed people giving them that advice. And when that, when that epiphany struck me, dude, you, you and that's, that's in direct contradiction to my oath to do no harm. I absolutely did harm recommending the American Diabetes Association diet to people with diabetes. I caused people to lose legs. I caused people to lose kidney function and, and to, to go blind and to die prematurely. I took people away from their family prematurely because in my own ignorance, I was giving them bad nutrition advice. And that's something that I still grapple with, the, the guilt of that, that for years I gave that terrible nutrition advice. I still grapple with that. But that was probably my biggest wow moment is when you're like, dude, you took an oath to help people and never do harm. And you literally are doing harm every day. When you give them that American Diabetes Association handout, you are doing harm. That's incredible. That's an extremely powerful message, to be honest. And in your defense, you were only doing what you could with the tools you had at that moment. You know, you thought you were doing good. Yeah. And in some professions, that would be an adequate excuse. But when a doctor takes an oath and when a doctor has a fiduciary duty to their patients to either A, know what the hell you're talking about or B, shut the hell up. That's really a doctor's only two choices. We don't get to say, oh, I didn't know better. Well, doctor, that's your damn job is to know better. That's literally why I come to you and sit in your waiting room for two hours and then get to see you for five minutes and then get a bill in the mail. That's literally why that why that happened is because you're supposed to know it's your duty. And I wasn't doing my duty and I'm trying now for the remainder of my career to make up for that. Well, you are doing a sterling job. And your book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, is so easy to read and it's so concise. And I just wanted to highlight a part at the end. It's called Little White Lies, and it's kind of a fun bit. And um, we've had quite a laugh in the office um, just demystifying some of these lies. Like the first one I want to start with is swallowing chewing gum stays in your stomach for years. Is that true or false? That's rubbish. No, it doesn't. It's it's digested and gone within hours to one day, it's completely gone. Okay, you lose most of your body heat through your head, so you must wear a hat. Yeah, and again, this is just a complete lack of understanding of human physiology. And it's okay if, if your hairdresser tells you that, because she's a hairdresser. She doesn't know. But if a doctor says stupid <laughs> shit like that, that's a problem, right? That The doctor should absolutely know better than that. But every one of the white lies in that book, I got from a doctor's blog or a doctor's tweet, or a doctor's website, 
or a doctor's book. I didn't ask my grandmother, hey, what's a lot of medical stuff you think is true? Every single one of those came from a source that came from a doctor. That's why it's so unbelievable that doctors say this kind of stuff. So carrots don't help you see in the dark? No? (laughs) No. So first of all, a lot of people, including many doctors and dietitians, think that carrots are a very good source of vitamin A, right? Guess what? Carrots don't contain any vitamin A whatsoever. Zero, none. No plant on the planet has vitamin A, which is retinol vitamin A. Now, many plants contain beta carotenoids, which some of us can convert into vitamin A. But the true source of vitamin A is liver and egg yolks. That's where vitamin, real vitamin A comes from. It does not come from plants. You cannot get it from plants. And if you're a poor converter, you can be very vitamin A deficient eating three pounds of carrots every day. Oh my God, you'll just go orange in the process. That's right. You'll have a nice orange glow, but you'll be deficient in vitamin A. That's right. Incredible. Okay. And finally, you've got to have eight glasses of water a day. Yeah. And this is a very common island of ignorance in the the ocean of people's intelligence, including healthcare providers. So where did this eight glasses come from? It's kind of like the, the gum in the stomach for seven years. Where did that number eight glasses? Why not seven? Why not nine? This is where that came from. And I actually have a YouTube video about this. So this came from research that was done back in the 30s and 40s. A a researcher said, I wonder how much water the average human ingests a day. And this included the amount they drink and the amount of water that was in the food they ate. And guess what it came up to? On average, about eight glasses of water a day. That's what the average human consumes. So that's where this number comes from. But now it has it has literally transmorphed into this new thing where it's a recommendation that you should drink eight glasses of water a day. And I've actually heard this come out of the mouths of preeminent MD, DO, PhD researchers whose, whose opinion I value very much. I've heard them say this out loud and I just, I, I try to be respectful and I, I just, I'm like, I'm not going to get into it with you, but that's complete, again, complete bullshit, bullshit, complete bollocks. It's meaningless. So if anybody tells you on any YouTube video or Instagram to you've got to drink eight glasses of water a day or drink your body weight in ounces of water a day, the next thing you need to do is click the unfollow (laughs) button. That person literally is ignorant when it comes to the basics of human physiology. Well, do you know what? I just love your attitude. I love your gung-ho way. You are fearless, ferocious, and extremely funny. And um, where can everyone connect with you? Where are your socials? So I have a I have a little YouTube channel. If you just search for Dr. Barry and then type in whatever medical condition or whatever nutrition style of eating. So Dr. Barry vegan, Dr. Barry hypertension, Dr. Barry whatever. I probably have a video about it. I've got over 600 on the channel. I also have an Instagram. If I'm feeling very loving and supportive, I get on Instagram. If I'm feeling very combative, I get on Twitter. If I'm feeling informative, I get on YouTube and I put out content that I I try to make it as simple as possible, just based on common sense and meaningful research. And then the paleoanthropology of all of it put together with a bow on top and no sprinkles. 
Fantastic. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I knew it would be. So just give us one final top tip, one piece of advice that people can take from this conversation or your your journey. Yeah, you are a human being. And if the, the default setting for the human body is good health and optimal function. That's the default setting that comes from the factory, so to speak. And so if you're currently suffering from chronic disease, chronic inflammation, any of them, it's something in your diet more than likely. Also could be in your environment. Also could be, uh, you know, in your bedroom, could be your spouse. I don't know. But it it most likely 80% of, of the cause of your chronic disease, whether that's a physical disease or a mental disease, is coming from your diet. As you move away from the standard, highly processed shit diet and you move towards a proper human diet, your chronic medical conditions and your chronic mental conditions will improve to the degree that you move away from the factory produced modern diet to a proper human diet, which consists of real, whole, unprocessed, nutrient dense, ancestrally appropriate foods that human beings have been eating for more than 15,000 years. That's the cutoff that removes all the bullshit. If we weren't eating it more than 15,000 years ago, then you shouldn't eat it either. You're left with lots of fatty meat, lots of seafood, lots of eggs, a few berries now and then, a few nuts now and then, honey once or twice a year, and a mixed drink on your birthday and your anniversary. Otherwise, on a daily basis, you're eating lots of fatty red meat and eggs with the yolk. That's what a proper human diet is made up of the majority. Fabulous. Completely concise. Superb. Ken Berry, thank you so much. You're a genius. Been a, been a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hack Your Health. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and please share it far and wide so everyone else can get healthier. The more people we can educate and empower will lead us to a healthier life. Okay, so we make this show for you and I'd love to get your feedback. So please do review us or DM me on Instagram at Davinia Taylor. This has been an Underground Fan Club production. <laughs>